I'll be reading our text in just a minute. Recently walking barefoot in the house, Mike and Debbie's son Paul severely hurt his toe by stubbing it against a piece of furniture. It really did a job on him. I stepped on a few toes during Catechism Club this past week, didn't I, Caden? All of a sudden, Caden said, Brother Kent, you stepped on my foot. Oh, I'm so sorry. Are you okay? Yeah. Sometimes as we work our way through God's work, word together, we may feel like our toes are being stepped on a bit because what is being preached is hitting a little bit too close to home. Well, that's what our text is all about, the home. It's Colossians 3, 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. Not very many verses, and they're crisp. Paul first speaks to the Christian husband and wife. Then he speaks about parent-child relations. And then, finally, he addresses masters and slaves who in the first century were also in the home. The home is the place where our sin shows up most readily, don't you think? Let's just take a little bite of this this morning by focusing on Colossians 3, verses 18 and 19, where Paul addresses husbands and wives. Reading our text. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting or proper in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This morning, I want us to consider three things about marriage. First, the beauty of marriage. Second, the tragedy of marriage. And finally, the restoration of marriage. Despite how the world views Paul's words here in these two very short verses, what we have here is the beauty of marriage. True beauty is one biological man and one biological woman, each fulfilling their respective roles in covenant community with a covenant commitment, sorry, with one another. The Apostle Paul calls, even commands, the wife to be submissive to her husband, and he calls, even commands, the husband to love his wife and to not be harsh with her. This type of language in the world's ears is chauvinistic and even abusive. But apart from God's grace in Jesus Christ, true beauty cannot be discerned. It cannot be seen. That's why the world crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. He, more beauty, beautiful than all else, infinite beauty, pure beauty, eternal beauty, 
was nailed to a tree by us. And because by grace alone, we are resting in his sufficiency to save us from our sin, and we are his and he is ours, we are gathered today to hear his voice, the voice of our crucified and risen Savior, what he has to say to us in his word about marriage in Colossians 3 and other scriptures. Ephesians 5 is actually the commentary on our text because there Paul is talking about the exact same things but only in a much more expansive way. I think this is really important. Paul tells us in verse 18 of Ephesians 5, to, he's telling Christians to be filled with the Spirit. But then in verse 22, Paul begins to show us what being filled with the Holy Spirit looks like in a God-glorifying marriage. It's when, he says, the wife submits to her husband because the husband is the head of the wife just as Christ is the head of the church. And this beauty in marriage is consistent throughout the entirety of the scriptures. And of course, he calls her to submission he calls him to headship and to love her and to not be harsh with her. And all of that beauty is consistent throughout the entire scriptures because the foundation for what Paul is teaching here was laid by God at creation. At creation, God made the man and woman distinct from each other so that they could, in fact, fulfill their respective roles in marriage, you'll remember that on the sixth day of creation, God formed Adam from the dust of the ground. Then he breathed life into his nostrils and placed him in the garden to work it and keep it. This word keep means to guard the garden. Adam was commissioned to guard the garden from all evil and to keep out evil. Adam was to work the garden, pick the fruit and so on, but he also was to guard the garden, protect the garden. This was Adam's great privilege and responsibility given to him by God. He was also privileged by God uh, by God giving him a covenant of works that he was to keep. So he was to work in the garden, protect the garden, and be obedient to God's commands. These were the great privileges and responsibilities that God handed the first man. Eve had not been created yet. And it was while Adam was exercising his headship over creation and naming all the animals that he recognized his loneliness and his lack of companionship. I can see Adam's countenance falling and his shoulders slumping as he names the zebras and the elephants and the mice because he feels deep within himself 
that he needs a companion like himself. But there is none. And there doesn't seem to be any hope at all until he hears God's voice. It is not good that man, for man to be alone, I will make a helper fit for him. Helper does not imply inferiority in any way. How could it? It was Adam's inadequacy that created his need for a helper. Biblically, being a helper does not make someone inferior because the scriptures tell us that God is our helper. He obviously is not inferior to us. As we worship together each Lord's Day, what is that we say together right after our faithful covenant God greets us? Can you say it with me? Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Oh, this, this is beautiful. God helped Adam by giving him a helper. And not just a helper, but one who was a perfect fit for him. She fit him like a glove. What he lacked, his beautiful bride would supply for him as his helper. And what she lacked, her husband would supply for her in his loving headship and protection. These beautiful, distinctive gender, gender roles uh, of headship and helper are marvelously seen here at creation. We've already noted that God gave Adam the ultimate responsibility of being the protector of the garden before Eve was created. That speaks of these distinctive roles. Then God making Eve from one of Adam's ribs also speaks of these distinctive roles. She came not from his head to rule over him, nor from his feet to be stomped on, but from his side to be led, loved, and protected by him and to be his helper. And then also Adam's headship is seen in the fact that he named her. In the ancient world, naming implied authority and headship. He named all the animals children. I bet that took a while. Then he named the first woman. He named her woman because she was taken out of man. And then he named her Eve in the next chapter because she was the mother of all living. Oh, he was so much like him, yet each of them was so distinct. The mother of all living Remember, he, Adam was absolutely thrilled. Remember what Adam said when he saw Eve? This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. These are the only recorded words of Adam pre-sin. The only recorded words of Adam prior to the fall. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because 
She was taken out of man. Howard Hendricks interprets this as Adam saying, Wow! Who is this? At last, finally, I have found the one I've been looking for. She's a perfect fit. These beautiful gender roles in marriage are given to us by God at creation and then are further clarified as we read in the New Testament epistles. The husband, Paul says, Ephesians 5, is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And in our text, Colossians 3.19, Paul says the husband is to love the wife and not be harsh with her. The way that God established marriage and designed it is so beautiful. Do you agree? But that leads us to the tragedy of marriage. Don't you see? Don't you see that in a very true sense, in our short little text this morning in Colossians 3, and the directives that are given there for the husband and the wife, well, they imply that a great tragedy in marriage has happened. And only through God's grace can the pieces be put back together. At creation, both Adam and Eve sinned, and therefore both of them were responsible before God. It is very significant to note, however, very significant, that in his role of headship, Adam failed to protect both his wife and himself, And in addition to that, the garden, the whole shebang. Because 1 Timothy 2 places the blame squarely on Adam because he knew exactly as head what was going on. He was aware of what was going on when he and his bride were eating the forbidden fruit. He was clearly warned of the dire circumstances and he intelligently took her down with the ship. Oh, our confession rightly teaches us that the fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. The fallout was enormous in terms of our guilt before God our loss of original righteousness and the corruption of our whole nature. But the effects on marriage were also tragic. Perfect love and intimacy is now gone. It doesn't exist anymore. There is no perfect love and intimacy on the face of the earth as a result. And just as significant, also gone, are the beautiful distinctions in the husband and the wife roles that God had so wonderfully given to Adam and Eve. This is tragic. This is the tragedy of marriage. 
in our fallen natures. It is no, it no longer feels right like it once did in the garden to, for the wife to submit the way God had her submit in the garden to her husband. And, and it no longer feels right for the man to sacrificially love and protect his wife like it once was. And as God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Because of sin, the marriage relationship has been turned completely on its head. Completely. And it's tragic. This is exactly what God meant when he said to Eve in Genesis 3. He said to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That word desire as it is used here means to control, to dominate, to rule. God was saying to Eve that where once she delighted in helping Adam and falling delightfully under his headship, now she wants to be the dominant figure and rule him, control him, and manipulate him. We know that this word desire means this because in the very next chapter, chapter 4, God says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door, Cain. Its desire is for you. Same word, same context. Sin desired to control Cain, to dominate Cain, to rule Cain, just as Eve desired now to do to Adam. And God also said to Eve, he shall rule over you. That word rule is not a loving and gracious rule. It's the rule of a dictator. It is a harsh rule for control from the husband. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, this tragedy of marriage is who we are in our fallen nature in Adam. And what we see in our world today, of which we are made of the same cloth, is the outright growth of that tragedy. The feminist movement is a constant attack on marriage. Men now rule with harshness rather than with love. There is a great rift in our world between the sexes. Legitimizing same-sex unions is a result of this tragedy. And sadly, I could go on and on and on. <clears throat> on Wednesday evening in Catechism Club, we were talking about man being made in the image of God. And Laurie and I used a mirror to illustrate to the children that concept that we were made in the image of God. Then we imagined what the mirror would look like if it were shattered. The image, if the, the image it reflected of us would then be broken, broken and marred, wouldn't it? 
In Adam's fall, the image of God was retained in man, but it was horribly shattered. And a large part of the ruin and misery that came from the fall is its effect on marriage. Laurie and I have had a somewhat unusual situation, I think, because our entire marriage we have been together every single second. No, I'm serious, every single second. I, I said to Laurie this morning, hasn't it been every single second? She looked at me, she sure feels like it. <laughs> As Christians in ministry, if you could come through our door throughout the years, as husband and wife in Christian ministry, if you could close the door and look into our home, you would laugh with us. You would be blessed with us because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you would also weep. You would weep if you saw your pastor and his wife. Why aren't they praying together? They could so easily pray together. They were praying together. Why aren't they? Why isn't he soothing her with his love? He knows that's what she needs. And she would melt. She would literally melt. Why is he not doing that? I can see that her countenance is fallen. I can see that her shoulders are slumped. Why are they blaming each other and only seeking to have their individual needs met? This steps on our toes. But that's why our text this morning calls us all back to marriage as God originally designed it, not only for our good, but also for his glory. As it is a picture of God's gracious love for us, his church, and the giving of his life on the cross of Calvary, and in how today he lives for us. And there is absolutely not one thing that we experience now as believers that he doesn't intend providentially for us to experience for our own good and our growth in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we come to <laughs> the restoration of marriage. Our text in Colossians 3.15 is calling us to our respective roles in marriage as Christian couples. But even more than that, much more than that, if you miss this, you've missed it all. A very short, two crisp verses, all about roles. But if you miss this, you've missed it all. It is calling us to recognize our need and to find our need in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Every single Christian who gets married needs to recognize that they are coming into a marriage broken. And they can't just clench their fists and suddenly begin to fulfill their God-given roles with human effort. How are they going to do that? 
Our hope is always in the Lord Jesus Christ and his sufficiency. The moment we placed our faith in Jesus Christ, Colossians over and over and over tells us that he took us and he placed us in his son. And as we study as husband and wife and pray and worship with God's people, grace should become more and more amazing to us in the home. Well, grace is already amazing, right? But as we grow in our understanding of all who Jesus is and all that is ours in him and the gospel, God's grace will get bigger to us. We are in his son. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We can't get any more. There is no second experience that we need as Christians. We have it all. And in him, we are co-heirs of eternal life. We can't do this on our own. Colossians 2, I believe 11, says that he is the full deity in bodily form and he is in us. We are not alone. It's coming to a greater and greater understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that is ours and the power and love that initiated it and it sustains it and will sustain it throughout all eternity. And to understand that, that the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation is to more and more look to him and depend on him for the things you would love to see in your growth as a couple and particularly in your respective roles. He's in you. He's at work cutting out the old dead branches of your life and bringing in the new. But we have to understand that the Christian life is always two steps forward and one step back. And growing into God's will in terms of a marriage couple is always two steps forward and one step back back. We have to also realize that it's a matter of the heart. That's where it starts, and only the Lord Jesus Christ can change the heart. A Christian marriage is more than just commitment to one another, no matter what. In a growing Christian marriage, the husband and wife will manifest more and more grace toward one another. Oh, that's, that's nice. That's really nice. Grace. Grace. Wow. I love it. I love grace. <laughs> I'm thankful for grace. I sure am. And with God's help, and by his grace, we can practice what it means to fulfill our God-given roles as husband 
and wife and practice is not a bad word. It is a good word. Well, the Puritans had a good balance on the roles of marriage. This is the book we're going through um, at Fa on Family Friday, Parenting God's, by God's Promises by Joel Beakey. <coughs> and I... I uh, excuse me. I couldn't see uh, detailing these respective roles without giving you some idea of how they might play out in life, because these terms that we've been reading are are loaded with. Uh, cultural false ideas. And so that's that's why I, I want to do this. Let's see what I've got here. This is good because this is how it plays out. So try to stay with me. The Puritans believed that a husband and wife ha had equal authority in the eyes of their children though a wife was expected to practice biblical submission to her husband. They had an orderly protocol for making decisions. If a husband and wife disagreed on a matter, they would talk over the issue until they came to a mutually acceptable solution. In the rare case when agreement could not be reached, it was the wife's duty to submit to her husband's authority in the matter. Of course, at times, a Puritan husband might defer to his wife's opinion. I never do that, do I? We've lived every second together, and just about every second I've deferred to her opinion, especially if he was persuaded by her reasoning or if she felt more strongly about a particular matter than he did. A wise husband, out of respect for his wife's intelligence, good sense, and practical experience, frequently deferred to her. Husbands and wives worked together as a team, as they should today. William Gouge said that the wife is her husband's co-worker, counselor, and comforter. The Puritans believed that a wise husband recognizes situations in which his wife's skills exceed his own and trusts her management in those areas. He is not threatened by her talents. Some Puritans suggested that husbands might delegate management of the family finances to their wives, since many women are better at it than their husbands. The Puritans also granted that a wife has the right and responsibility to admonish her husband privately. And it goes on to express more if you'd like to get this book. And so I, I really hope that that, that that helps. And I just, I just want to end today by thanking God for Christ loving his church and giving himself up for us. And if there's anyone here who has not heard the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, hear now. Because the free offer of the gospel goes out from this pulpit 
and into the world, but it starts with you because you're a part of our church family. We want to see young and old alike all making a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because they recognize as they walk and stand beneath the cross that they have sinned and a lot of the pain and misery in this life is because of them and because of every, each one of us. But as they look up, they see the righteous one who gave his life and laid all our sins upon himself so that the justice of God might be maintained. He was punished for us. We can't, God can't just forgive. He's a God of justice. Someone had to suffer and die in our place. And this is how much he loves the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how much he loves his own. This is how much he loves. And so, give heart. Today is the day of salvation. To uh, Praise God. Today is the day of salvation. And as we all come to the Lord's table today, we can know that Thank God for that table after getting our toes stepped on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the wonderful grace of Jesus, and we thank you, Lord, that as a result of our justification, you continue to work in our lives, in our marriages, in our lives as children and young people in high school, those who are in college, you continue to work in our lives as we look to you, Lord Jesus, because Jesus is enough. He is the preeminent one, and he is sufficient for all things. We'll thank you for it, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's all stand together, and please turn, if you will, to...